It's Thursday the 14th of January. Welcome to our afternoon sport deep dive. I'm Tim Gilbert and I'm joined by my co-host Shane Lee who's been in the Times of India, every newspaper publication. Your comments yesterday, they certainly went off. Yep, but it came from the heart too. So uh, you had a genuine concern over Steve Smith and um, as I said yesterday, hopefully Cricket Australia and the people within that organisation get around him and support a guy who's probably one of our best batsmen of all time. Yeah, huge talent. All right, we've got a lot coming up on the show. We're going to preview this test match and tell you what doesn't have a bit about it at the Gabba. Michael Checker, former Wallabies coach, is on board and so is our tennis expert, Jaslyn Hewitt. It's afternoon sport. Shana, you've gone global, mate. This is this is bigger than when Six and Out had their platinum album. I know, mate, but um, in all seriousness, I, I was really... Um, generally concerned about Steve Smith and you know you, you can see certain signs and one of the things is when you're a you're a sports person and particularly when you're a captain um, you can see signs on the field and and you obviously react and and um, you may change the field or the situation or the bowler to that and yeah I could just see signs that there's some deep deep-seated anger there and um, you know I always thought that your uh, your thoughts really control your behavior and um what was going on in his head at the moment. There's some, some some bad stuff happening there. So hopefully we get that sorted and we can look after one of our greatest batsmen of all time. Well, I think a few of the English guys have been a bit over the top, Goff and Vaughan and, mm. and David Lloyd in particular. Look, they they love putting the slipper into us no matter what. So whenever they get a chance, that they, they do that. That's the English way. Um, but that's fine and uh, and we'll deal with that. But uh, looking forward to the fourth test, um, you know, it's it's not it's not all plain sailing on the Indian side either. They're they're totally complaining about their um, hotel situations. They said they can't use the pool or the gym. Um, they don't really want to be in Brisbane, and our record there is exceptional. So, this fourth test, um, tune in because it's going to be some really good viewing. I think, and both teams fighting. It's got all this undercurrent happening. So it makes way for a really, really good test match. Yeah, and, and the television numbers for Channel 7 and Fox have just been through the roof. Just extraordinary because uh, people have a huge appetite to watch it. How do you think it's going to go? Uh, they are battered and bruised, the Indians, but they showed in Sydney what they can do when their back's up against the wall. And Australia, well, there's an element of deflation. I'm not trying to sort of... Um, you know, change history here because the history is on their side in Brisbane, but they've got to pick themselves up after a day where they thought it would have ended differently. The biggest difference in Brisbane is that the ball bounces above the knee roll on a regular basis. So therefore, our fast bowlers really come into play. But the Indian batsmen generally don't like batting when the ball's bouncing above their knee roll. And by that, you know, that brings the slips into play. You hardly saw three slips in Sydney. You will see three slips from ball one at the Gabba. Um, and the big thing there is that too for the spinners, for line, it also bounces. So keep that in mind. Ashwin will, will probably bowl well there. He's having a fantastic series. But, you know, um, I see the Aussies either batting first, um, putting on a hopefully a big score. Uh, day two, the wicket always uh, quickens up and um, our bowlers will come into their own. And Pat Cummins will be a handful up there. Yeah, well, if India bats first, it might be the complete reverse of all of that. Mm. But what do you think about the Sixers uh, in Canberra? They dominated the Thunder. There was a bit of rain about, so Duckworth-Lewis system came into play. But this Josh Philippi, I tell you what, he's going to be not only on the um, state stage, but the national stage for a while, I reckon. He is. He's a real talent. 64 runs off 36 balls. But the Sixers have a really nice balance of youth and experience. Um, 
Look, Stephen O'Keefe, three for 15 or four overs. He's a wily old character, and we're, we're going to get him on the show here at Afternoon Sport. He's a, he's a good guy as well. And you've got guys like Dan Christian, who just chipped in last night with 15 not out of five balls, little cameo. So a beautiful blend of experience and um, and youthful talent. And, you know, that um, we've got Pope to the leg spinner who, who can chime in. So they're a very, very well-balanced team, the Sixers, and, um, and playing – in good form at the moment too. And Shano, we're off to lunch today, buddy. Um, I hope you've uh, sort of starved yourself for the past 24 hours. I sure have, mate. Well, it's been a good start for the team here at Afternoon Sport and to Dan and everyone that's contributed. And um, as we said, mate, we're the number one daily sports show, so we might have a little celebration today. Not too big, of course, being a Thursday, but uh, maybe a little Chinese feed. I know Dan loves his lobster, mate, so we won't, we won't have to watch him now. We're not doing that well just yet. Well, if he has a bit of tea, <laughs> what I'll have just a slither off the edge of it. Yeah, look, and tell your friends, uh, get on board. Thanks to everyone who's been uh, downloading and listening. Tell your friends, we're only going to get bigger and better in 2021. This is Afternoon Sport. Coming up next, it is all the tennis news with, of course, our tennis expert, Jaslyn Hewitt. See you soon. Afternoon sport. Well, it really is heating up both literally and the tennis is heating up. Jaslyn Hewitt, how are you? Good, thanks, guys. Yes, tennis this week has been uh, fantastic for our Australians with the Australian Open qualifying kicking off in Doha and Dubai. We've had some fantastic results from the Australians over there. Uh, A lot of juniors are coming through. We've had the likes of Olivia Gadecki uh, make the second round. Uh, And then on the uh, men's side, you've got Dane Sweeney, who unfortunately lost in the last round. And then uh, Bernard Tomic uh, made his way through, beating fellow Australian in the last round, J.P. Smith. And Alex Demino claimed his fourth ATP title, singles title as well too, Jaslyn. Yeah, he did. So he won that over in Turkey. Uh, a bit disappointing against Bublik in the final. Bublik rolled his ankle uh, after the second game and had to withdraw. So uh, not, the, not the way you actually want to win a title, mm-hmm. but it is his fourth title, um, ATP title, and that's fantastic news for him and it just shows the form that he's in. Uh, So he's ready for the Australian Open. I do want to ask you about Bernard Tomic because uh, he's come out with some very interesting comments. But before we get to that, how how does does Alex Demonor make his way back now? Because he's won this, which is fantastic. His fourth ATP crown. And we know how much ability he's got. How does he get back to Australia and then get into the Australian Open? It's an interesting process. Yeah, so with the quarantine now, all the uh, international players will be starting to arrive today and tomorrow into Australia. They've then got to have 14 days. Um, They'll be tested prior to uh, departing and being on the flight. The flight are put on by Tennis Australia only about 20% full so there's about 18 flights I think organised and uh, yeah, it's strict regulations, they'll be put down into uh, three accommodation sites in Melbourne, Um, they'll be only allowed out of their hotel room five hours per day, so they're stuck in the hotel for 19 hours Um, and that's all the training that they can do, if it's uh, in the gym, uh, they've got about 20 different gym sites set up at um, Melbourne Tennis Centre in the car parks, uh, different locations, and they'll be cleaned for every athlete before they go back and train. Um, Jazz, 
Bernard Tomic, as you said, he's qualified, um, but he's come out and he's had a go at his critics saying, you know, um, why, why were people doubting me? He should just get on and play, should he? He's a really hard guy to like, this fella. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey for him, watching him in the juniors and growing up and the family background and support that he has had. It's an interesting dynamic, watching John and Bernard and his sister who has fought her way through as well, Sarah Tomic. Hopefully he's actually seeing now how hard it is with life outside of tennis and that uh, being a tennis and having that skill and ability as much as you don't always like it, uh, it's it's a lot easier than normal jobs or uh, nine to five jobs doing something you don't necessarily like for not as much money. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so hopefully he's just come to that realisation that maybe he's wasted the last six years of his life and he could have actually put himself in a better position. Yeah, he's a pr- prodigious talent, he, like a little question of that. And look, he's often said that he doesn't want to play tennis. He's, he's even gone as far as to say, I don't even like it. It's just, you know, it's just an income. I think that what you're saying there, and I, look, I agree with both of you on this without sitting on the fence. He is a hard bloke to like, but I think he has realised that if he's going to have to start heaving a pick on the side of a road, he's not going to get the money. So he's saying he's going to play deep into his 30s. Yeah, and that's definitely going to set him up. I mean, it's if you look at this generation of kids coming through, it's actually cool to um, not try and it's cool not to be put your best effort out there. And that's the concerning part. If you look at um, just normal school kids and, and their resilience and toughness, I think the next generation of kids with, is, is quite uh, concerning with their mental well-being and what they actually think is cool with their peers. So hopefully that now they're seeing Nick Kyrgios turn a leaf possibly Bernard Turnerleaf if he continues with this attitude, uh, that it is actually cool to try and work your butt off for something and, and be as good as you possibly can be again. If you look at uh, Anthony Mundine, the best that he's put himself through, like trying his hardest in everything, the way Leighton fought on the court, the way Demon yep. fights on the court, I think it's a quality trait that Australian uh, sports people have had and it's just disappointing that I think this next generation of culture is almost too cool to try that if I was to lose, it, it hurts my image, whereas, no, you actually, you've put your best foot forward. It doesn't matter. You learn from that mistake or you learn from that loss. Yeah, call me old-fashioned, Jazz, but not trying is not cool in my books. <laughs> um, John John Eisner, um, he pulled out uh, the Australian Open due to biosecurity restrictions. Yeah, he's got two young kids and um, I guess similar to as much as they're saying Federer with the uh, knee injury. It is going to be a long time away for those players from their families and it is going to be a challenging time. It's more stricter than any other um, Grand Slam that's been the French Open or US Open for these players, even the week-in, week-out tournaments on the ATP and WTA circuit. They're they're allowed to get to the country, have one uh, test. As soon as that comes back negative, then they can go and play and be let out of their home hotel our governments are just not permitting that um within good reason and you see that all the only cases that australia are having is from overseas and that's why it's alarming having 1200 internationals come from different hotspots around the world when we seemingly have the virus quite contained at the moment so we definitely don't want any more spikes in, in our country going into a lockdown which is why tennis australia have been so diligent and uh restrictive with their quarantine guidelines just to keep the public safety. Finally, Ash Barty, what what is her 
month of January looking like? Yeah, so she's, uh, again, up in Brisbane. I think she'll probably uh, head down to Adelaide uh, after the WTA um, event that they're going to have, I believe, up in Brisbane, but anything's chopping and changing um, at this stage. Um, but it's, it's interesting with her and the top uh, six players. So you've got uh, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, Djokovic, Nadal, all being allowed to go and quarantine down in Adelaide. And then they're going to play a one-off event. You've had a couple of uh, players ranked around 70, 80 in the world that have had a little bit of a complaint about that. But I think the likes of these players, when you're playing your for your 21st or 20th Grand Slam championship. Um, I think they they deserve the the spotlight and the uh, silver lining that they can get in these troubling times. Jazz, thanks for your time. Well, hopefully we're going to see some Australians holding that cup up this year. I've got a good feeling for this year. Yes, I think we'll go deeper. I think the qualifying has also proved that, just given the last 12 months that we haven't actually seen where a lot of our upcoming players have been placed due to them the lack of competition that they've been able to play but uh, I think what the players have done Sweeney, uh, Schoolkate and Gadecki in particular over in Doha and Dubai in the qualifying I think it shows that the UTR events that we've been having here and the quality of matches that they've been playing for the last six months in those events uh, should keep them in good stead for the AO. Yeah and a good message to those that are ranked higher in the world that might be moaning a little bit Keep working hard, and if you get up that totem pole, you might end up in a more cushier situation. That's just the way of the world. Thanks, Jazz. Talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. In just a tick, it is former Wallabies coach Michael Checker. I tell you what, he's had an interesting year. He's been helping out Argentina. He's been with the Roosters and Trent Robinson. The check is next. Stump to Stump is Australia's newest and most interactive cricket platform for all cricket fans, players and clubs to share stories, match results, memories and experiences. Stumptostump.com Afternoon sport, a real treat to have, well, what hasn't he done this past 12 months after uh, leaving as the Wallabies coach? Michael Checker, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Michael, Shane Lee here, mate. Following the Wallabies, mate, you've had some great success with the Argentinians in particular um, and coaching the Lebanon Rugby League team. Mate, where, where are you at this time? You also with the Roosters, I believe. Yeah, well, I think um, after the World Cup, uh, obviously there was the, the, a bit of a, a period of, <clears throat> you know, um, uh, inward, looking inward. You know, what could I have done better? Reflection on... Um, the things that I think I could have could have done a little bit better, just overall performance and a little bit of grieving too because uh, I was really, you know, after the, the 15 World Cup final, that was a big goal um, to achieve. And it didn't happen, but then, you know, you've got to bounce back and uh, I suppose I wanted to try some things that got me outside of my comfort zone. So uh, going into the Roosters, I'd worked with them a little bit in pre-seasons prior, but, prior, but just small amounts. So it, was a, it was a great opportunity afforded me by Trent Robinson and uh, the, that was really, really good for me. For, number one, it's the first time I'd ever been in a team environment without being the boss. Right. You know, I've always been the head coach since I started coaching. So that was new in itself. And then, you know, the, the opportunity that came – with Argentina, I, maybe when I first started speaking with them, I didn't really think it would happen because I thought something would 
you know, get would appear that I would, I would be doing that I wouldn't have the time to do it. But the way the scenario turned out, it gave me the opportunity to do that. Again, a totally different role for me um, inside of that uh, team. Was it was it was it a bit quirky or a little weird to start with being in? I, I know that there's a real French connection with all three of you guys, and they're not together, but that's where you got to know each other. Is that first up? Is that correct? Yeah, Trent, in the uh, two ten eleven season, I met Trent through a mutual friend down south. He was coaching Catalan Dragons before he came back to Australia, and we just you know had some great discussions about footy over time, and then. That relationship grew. He came on a Wallaby tour early on when I came, just for a bit of experience for himself. And uh, we've always exchanged and, and shared with other coaches in a, in a group. And Mario, I actually started him off coaching. He uh, was playing at Clermont Ferrand over there. He'd be played in France for a long time. And uh, I felt that he would, you know, he was a leader inside his own team. I thought he'd be a good coach. He'd never coached before. So when he retired from Clermont, I offered him the opportunity to come and coach up in Paris, which which he did, and we started coaching together there. And then, of course, he came and, and after staying in France when I left, he then uh, came and assisted with the Wallabies uh, from 2000 and for late 2015 onwards to 17. Michael, the, the Roosters, from, from the outside looking in, appear to be a real family club almost. Um, they seem to look after their, their, their younger guys really well. Was that your experience there? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, mm. What what they have is uh, something that most uh, teams in general, in all sports, uh, and also, but in particular in professional sports, even harder, where there's a real alignment between the owner uh, or yeah. the yeah, the federation, the the CEO, so the chairman, the CEO, the head coach, the captain. There's a real straight line and. When those when that formula appears, then sporting teams are inevitably successful. But regard to their level, obviously, and Roosters have a high level of player, uh, but that doesn't guarantee you success. You have to have those that anchor sort of set in the ground. And that's why they give that air of uh, looking after each other because they all understand what's expected, what success looks like, uh, and they understand that there'll be that the, of how to get over. Mistakes. You don't have to be perfect, but when mistakes are made, whether they be on or off the field, you know that you know what you need to do to rectify that. Did it feel a little weird sitting in the Argentinian box having coached the Wallabies? You were perfectly positioned to know their, their strengths and weaknesses. And, and that's one part of the question. The second part of the question that a lot of people won't um, remember is that you guys beat the, the Argentinians beat the All Blacks in this past winter. Yes, it was the first part. It was definitely very weird. When, you know, coaching Australia, obviously a dream for, for any um, young or anyone who's involved in rugby, I suppose. It's, it's a huge honour and opportunity. And, in fact, before what, what probably isn't known is before uh, I was already cl- talking with Argentina before I got the Australian job way back when. Right. So, um that's obviously being your home country, there's, a, there's that, that air when you're coaching that you, because of the legacy you want to try and leave, that you'll be there forever. So you, you, you think that way. So the idea of then stepping up against 
to Wobbies, maybe in a slightly different form because I wasn't the head coach. It was it was different, and it was it was weird. And I suppose, um, you know, two draws against the Wallabies pretty much sums it up. To be honest, and yeah. I think that's it. Sort of ended up that way. It was tough at home. The, the kids asked me um, <laughs> they had the support. They weren't sure, and I told them, "You can't change where you're born, boys." You know, and then to Lichia, so. You know, of course, they they cheering on the Wallabies. So that would be a world's first for me, having my kids uh, cheering against me. But uh, I think that's that goes with the territory at some stage. But I really enjoyed it. It was a totally different mindset of player, um, totally different cultural uh, background, co- totally different team environment. And that All Blacks win was extraordinary too, wasn't it? Yeah, I think. Look, we we had a certain way throughout the whole tournament that we wanted to set the team up. Uh, obviously, they hadn't played serious rugby. Ma- majority of them hadn't played serious rugby for over a year, so right. there was going to be some restraints on how we could play the game. And and we didn't. I don't think we set out to play negatively. We just set out to play to what we think. We set the team up in a way that we thought we could stay in the contest because obviously the oppositions wouldn't have expected us to stay in the contest. So that's number one strike. If you stay in the contest against teams that don't expect you to stay in the contest, you that's a win already before you've even got on the scoreboard. And then you just got to ride out the situations as they appear. And, and as we know, all sport, it, the, when the whistle blows, the preparations have all been made. It's the, it's the top two inches that really um, – apply because all the preparation is done in advance and that should be all on autopilot. So yeah. uh, we tried to play. And in the end, they, they had a great tour, really. They had two matches, prep matches against Australia A uh, with, without many of the test players who were playing in Europe, and they won both of those. They they won the game against New Zealand, had two draws against Australia. So they went home with only the one loss, so they go home mm-hmm. very happy. And there was a lot happening on the tour, obviously, um, off the field that they caught them a bit by surprise, but... Uh, even with all that, they were able to ride the course. And they're super physical too. Hey, where's, um, in your opinion, where, where's rugby at? It seems to be really strong in the Northern Hemisphere, but it seems to be struggling a bit here in New Zealand at the moment. Well, I think that's just a consequence of, of populations and and, uh, and competition. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, Europe has big football competitions, as in soccer, um, rugby union, there's uh, each country has some small speckles of other games. So, rugby league is there, it's not as potent. Ireland, you would have the Gaelic games. There's other, you know, France, you have things like handball, uh, and, and there's of course basketball is there, but they don't really. They, then they have the same, the English countries have the sort of summer thing being cricket, but not, not the other European countries. So, there's a huge miss. Uh, mismatch around finances, uh, the ability of, of negotiating TV deals, all that type of stuff, which means we are struggling to stay the course, uh, staying staying competition financially, and right. and also it's getting tougher if you look at the way the competitions are going. The Northern Hemisphere is starting to come into a bit of a, a heyday at this point, often through the fact that they've their competitions, their domestic competitions are going up a level through the bringing in a lot of overseas players as well mm. to understand that their own players are. 
So the game here probably needs to look at reinventing itself a little bit yeah. so it can compete in maybe a different front as opposed to the same front as those competitions. Just finally, Michael, you and I are both very proud of our Lebanese heritage. Uh, you know, my mother came out here. Your parents came out to, uh, to Australia. Um, and to go and coach the Lebanese rugby league team, it must be uh, a real sense of pride. I know my son, he's 25% Lebanese. He loves playing rugby league. He was the only one that voted for them to win the Rugby League World Cup on the, on the competition. He wants to play for Lebanon as well. <laughs> well, look, mate, I think I've been back there many times and obviously I'm born here and very Australian. But there's always that part of your heritage that exists and a lot of family members over there. And obviously the, the story of the country is, is one that is like a roller coaster of ups and downs over the years and probably more down of recent times, a lot of hardship, a lot of tragedy. And I've always wanted to try and do something. I'm involved with UNICEF um, as an ambassador here in Australia for Lebanon and, and charity-wise. And here's an opportunity I thought that I could actually do something that I know about and give something back to that to the people there because even if they know nothing about rugby league, uh, many of them, there's a chance for them, which is a very rare chance, to watch on TV while their national team plays sport or expats who are either from Australia or from um, the UK or from France or in South America who can um, then tune in and watch the, the Cedar play uh, on the world stage. I remember um, at the 15 World Cup, I did uh, even just an interview uh, and in, in my pidgin Arabic that I have and it was... Yeah, me too. In, uh, it was written up on back pages of, of Arabic newspapers. Obviously, I can't read or write. I can speak, but I can't read or write, so I didn't know what it said. Obviously, this guy's got the worst Arabic of all time, right? But yeah. <laughs> I think just that opportunity to, to do that. And for me, it's obviously an opportunity in, at the highest level in rugby league to be in a Union World Cup and League World Cup. That'd be a big thrill for me. And I really want to try and put something in place that's going to last, not just for this World Cup, so that Lebanon playing rugby league in the future will be part of the, the regular with Australia and Tonga and New Zealand and these teams when the, when the matches are on. It's not just we'll all get up for the World Cup and play. We'll, Let's get something where we can play, where they can play more regularly and give the people something to cheer about. Hey, Timmy, um, we, want, we probably want to hope that your son's 25% Lebanese doesn't mean that's his back because it's going to be very hairy, mate, I reckon. So. <laughs> well, mate, I'm the, non, I'm, I'm the most non-Hirschute Lebo you've ever seen in your life. But it was really interesting at the at the year 2000 Olympic Games, it was myself and three of my brothers and they're like blonde, blue eyes, all sorts of – and then these people around us couldn't believe it when this almighty cheer went up when Lebanon walked into the stadium. It was it was really interesting. But, but yeah, yeah, it is such a beautiful heritage, isn't it, Michael? So family-orientated and I lost my mother a couple of years ago, but you sort of – there's a – certain magic that you want to tell people about? There is. And I was blown away by, even just if you look at it from the sporting side of things, World Rugby, uh, or Asia Rugby, in fact, contacted me and asked me if I'd go to Lebanon to do some coaching clinics in, I think it was 2018. Well, I was shocked. I said, who's playing rugby union over there? I had no idea. When when I went over, I went to the, the fields they took me to and there was hundreds of girls and boys from teenagers right down to like sevens and eights and then adults as well for different timings, coaching clinic, they all knew who I was. And it was, it's, there's so much going on in the world that we don't know about. And people are interested in so many things. 
Uh, and especially where it can give the opportunity for you to show a bit of not necessarily nationalism, even just pride in your community and, and people who represent your community. And that's a great thing for, for people who are, who are often in very difficult situations over there. These, are, these moments are very, very important. And I think we take it for granted running out, um, out of the tunnel to, to play in the crowd. We all take that for granted. But the, those folks over there, they wouldn't get that opportunity. And, and also for the expat community, which is quite large, the diaspora is, is huge globally it gives them a chance also to show their colors and um and that's uh, instead of just looking maybe at some bad things in the, in the news about what's happening in the country so it, it, it's all around it's good and i want to make sure i do my best to get that it's really a mission of mine this year to get to to give all those people an opportunity to get behind the team well i'm sure you'll do a great job and, and wherever we can help you know just a phone call away and uh, look forward to it thanks for coming on afternoon sport good stuff lads. i really appreciate you thanks for having me that's it for afternoon sport today we will be with you monday to friday every week hit subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss it a big thank you today goes to michael checker and of course jaslyn hewitt and spartan sports they are great sponsors of ours shane spartansportshq.com and uh, we've given up on the joke we've had so many little one-liners but dan McHugh, he knows how good he is he knows that little funky bit of music really does tickle our fancy see you tomorrow see you then guys